first episode of Subtext and Discourse, a podcast about contemporary art, the art world, and life in general. I'm your host, Michael Dooney. Right now, you're hearing Vienna-based conceptual artist Chris Fortescue. He was here in Berlin for Gallery Weekend and the opening of his solo exhibition at Jarvis Dooney Gallery. We spoke about his artistic practice and what motivated him to move from Sydney to Vienna, so I hope you enjoy hearing our conversation. Good that we have the time that we can do this, and yeah, obviously really grateful that you had an exhibition with us at the gallery. I'm really grateful for you hosting it. Yeah, no, it's been really nice. Um, I thought rather than going straight into this current exhibition, mm-hmm. this is all new work, maybe we can um, get a bit more of a backstory, because I knew your work before from the photographer context, so yeah. when you were showing the stills and the work you did in the 90s and that period, and... Yeah, I guess I've come to learn over the weekend from really the late 90s, early 2000s, didn't use a camera at all. It's mostly acquiring images or using existing photography, mm. but then also using installation, using sound, noise is a big part of your practice as well. Yeah. So maybe if we kind of go back to the start and you know, how did you come to, to start thinking, okay, I'll, I'll be a contemporary artist, I'll focus on these things. Like, did it have it? Yes, sir. Or, you know, no, no, so, <laughs> I mean, we know that you're Yeah. I mean, I know that you're from Sydney, you're living in Vienna. Yeah. But even <clears> kind of a rough thing of what kind of happened in between, like, to go from one, from start to finish. It's hard to say. I mean, back to art school kind of thing. Yeah, like, what was the, I guess, what was the motivation or what was the... The motivation for going to art school? Yeah. The motivation for going to art school was um, a decade spent in the real world and thinking that it's like really bad out there. Yeah. <laughs> and when I, when I realised that I could go to art school, it was like, uh, I don't know, just like a, it was like a saving, it's like being saved somehow by mm-hmm. a place where you could... Um, do whatever you liked and think whatever, think whatever you liked without sort of being constrained by, um, or at the time I thought without being constrained by, you know. Where you could, was a place where you could think freely. Yeah. What were you doing before then? What was your... Like, no, well, when I left school, I, I, um, I just did a variety of kind of horrible jobs, okay. basically. Um, I just... When a lot of my um, friends went to university, mm-hmm. but I didn't really have anything that I wanted to do at university. Yeah. Uh, you know, lots of people went there because they thought that this would be a good job or that would be a good job or some other thing, but they, none of them were fired by vocational uh, passion or anything like that. It didn't seem to me anyway, and yeah. I certainly wasn't. So I thought, well, why bother to go to university and have more of this kind of thing that I've been doing in high school? If I haven't actually got something that I'm passionate about, yeah, and I didn't, so I just you know joined the workforce, joined the Australian materialistic rat race, <laughs> basically, yeah, and um, got very disillusioned with that over a period of time, um, and then I travelled a bit, spent some time in London, and um, it was there that I realised that, that art schools were a thing, mm-hmm. and I could go to art school because I didn't have any background in the arts at all. Okay. My parents weren't um, artistic or particularly cultured, so you know I just had a normal, um, you know, Australian suburban upbringing. Yeah, I didn't have any you know relevance to. But it was art school in Australia that you went to. Yeah, yeah. Well, I, I um, 
I thought about um, going to art school in, uh, in the UK, but um, in the end I came back to Australia and ended up going to Sydney College of the Arts, mm-hmm. which was, um, at the time, retrospect, in retrospect, I think probably it was one of the best art schools in the world. Yeah, what, like, just to give us a sense of the context, what period? Like, this was in the 80s? Um, well, it was established by the Whitlam government in the 1970s with the Australian yeah. Film and Television School. Okay. Um, and it was part of that kind of um, Whitlam Renaissance thing. And it was just given carte blanche, really. Yeah. Um, and it didn't operate like any of the other art schools that were around at the time. It was oh, just okay. really fresh. And it was also um, somehow like a real artist practice would be like because it didn't have any proper premises. When I went to Sydney College of the Arts in the early 80s, mm-hmm. I was there in the first half of the 80s and um, it didn't have any proper premises you know it was um, it was oh when you say no premises like a location or there was no agenda or no it didn't have it didn't actually have a a proper location it was Ah, was spread out all over the place in there it was like a cuckoo it was in these different spots it was in part of it was in a um, a disused um, primary school and part of it was in what used to be a biscuit factory Mm-hmm. Um, but it was all just really super rough and cobbled together and um, we used to go to theory classes the police boys club in Bellamay and stuff like that yeah. it was like well, where can we get a venue this week you know yeah um, so it was really ad hoc and I, th- I thought that was great really really good it was sort of like what it would be in the real world mm-hmm. although I didn't know it at the time really but that's what it was like yeah but you feel that's changed a lot since oh yeah, yeah. it's sure. a lot more I guess institutionalized. Yeah, one of the better words. Yeah, yeah, it was institutionalized, and it was um, everybody wanted to make it more normal. They all regarded that um, um, open-ended, rubbishy um, thing as being not, you know, not legitimate somehow, and it wouldn't wouldn't be given status. Okay. Um, so everybody was trying to get better premises, a more secure future. They thought. Okay. Yeah. And they ended up. Um, in the old um, lunatic asylum at Cal Park, which is beautiful heritage harborside real estate. Yeah. And I, by that stage, I didn't have anything to do with Sydney College anymore, but um, when I moved there, I thought, mm, you know. <laughs> and subsequently, of course, there's been a lot of trouble with the university because then after, after it moved there, it was still an independent body. It was part of a, the independent group of art schools in Australia, but... Um, then they all got absorbed um, into the university system, yeah. Um, during the Hawke government years, um, and then they had to toe the line, yeah. Like all of the art schools did when they did that, um, which wasn't really compatible with um, what I would have thought to be uh, a good art education. Yeah. So they just kind of went. They just got. It became more and more. Ossified, I think, as all of those institutions tend to do after a while. They can't, they can't stay fresh forever. No, of course not. I think like little movements, I think even how you're describing it, it's even, you know, how you sort of make a comparison like so many of us do, but kind of punk could only exist yeah. in its form yeah. as a short period because it's going to evolve and it's going to change. Yeah. And it can only, like, that kind of chaotic environment isn't sustainable long term, even though it's so conducive to so much creativity and inspiration. Yeah. And then, so when you were at the um, at Sydney College of Arts, 
you were like specialized in photography or no it's funny because I did um, I did my major subjects there were photography sculpture and sound oh okay that's, <laughs> that's appropriate then. yeah and I haven't really kind of well, I've just done that really ever since mm-hmm. that mixture not not simultaneously necessarily but there were all those threads that have been there all the time yeah yeah so and so going from that then because they're quite yeah, they're almost quite separate, really, like photography, sound, and installation, mm. even though we can kind of see through your work that they do have a lot in common. Mm. Um, but your your initial focus was photography, or you were trying to mix the, the, the initial ones together? Well, the, the problem was I didn't have a focus. Yeah. <laughs> it's, a, it's a photographic joke. Yeah. <laughs> but, um, yeah, I, I didn't really settle on any one thing as being something that I could just absolutely concentrate on. I was yeah. always being pulled around from different in different directions mm-hmm. by, uh, you know... Because um, if I think to your early work, it's almost like you're using photography to document the sculptures that you were creating. Well, that's how it started. Yeah. I mean, when I was working in the photography area at Sydney College, um, most of the people there were... Um, I mean, they, they were open to... Um, Contemporary work, they, they, everybody there was super open. But they, they, were all, they also had a background in much more conventional kinds of photography, black and white photography, mm-hmm. large format photography, street photography. Yeah. Um, and the idea of a, you know the fine print somehow was there. That's what they were, you know that whole craft thing that they they were interested in imparting. Yeah. And I just didn't have any interest in it at all. I thought photography was interesting, but I was more interested in the kind of photography that was not regarded as being craft photography. I was really okay. interested in um, performance documentation okay. from the 1970s and stuff and, um, and um, you know, the structuralist influence on you know, things like the camera documenting its own condition and stuff like that. Yeah, okay. I thought those things were much more interesting than any other things. Programmatic uses of the, material, of, of the, of the technology. Mm-hmm. And you think that's why you eventually like abandoned taking your own photos? No, or was that much later? It's hard to say. It's really hard to say. I think I, I, I abandoned taking my own photographs. I think when I when I realised, well, not necessarily when I realised, but the last body of photographs that I took that I exhibited, um, I after I'd made them all, it was sort of like it was the beginning of the nineties, mm-hmm. and Photoshop sort of made. The kinds of things that I was spending um, hours and hours and hours and hours trying to organise in front of a camera, yeah, and then get printed in a way I wanted it to be printed, and then not destroyed when it goes onto the wall because we were working with cyberchrome and those kind of materials that were really fragile. It's like, yeah, it was a nightmare. It was okay. just a nightmare. I didn't want to have anything to do with it anymore. In fact, um, I, I showed I showed this body of photographs and it caused a real lot of angst. Oh, from the public or no, 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 yourself? just from from me personally. Okay. The public really liked them. Yeah, you know, they were sold to all the major collections and stuff like that. Mm-hmm. Um, but the, the actual business of making the photograph and then getting it printed and mounted and to on a gallery wall it was just like horror. Okay, it's really bad. And after that, I thought I'm not going to do that anymore. <laughs> and um, the next exhibition I had after that was shown in Melbourne, and I. I um, Basically, it was just this. Color. I'd been working with um, shapes, just kind of 
I was trying to figure out what, how I could make a shape which was um, uh, had some kind of um, representat- representational connection. So you looked at you could look at this shape and think, is that a silhouette of a Maybe that's, uh, you know, that kind of thing. Yeah. Um, but at the same time, it wasn't anything that you could... So you could hover between representation and abstraction. Okay. And I just cut them out of wallpaper, the sort of wallpaper that you get in pizza pizza parlours of brick, you know, fake brick wall. Oh, yeah. And um, I just took them down to the gallery, rolled up, you know, tube on the arm in the plane, mm-hmm. you know, got to the gallery, stuck them on the wall, um, and they looked really great. They looked fantastic. They had this really strange... Like, these things are kind of... A, Sort of a strange play between depth and on the surface. Yeah, I couldn't tell which was the. Is that a real? Is that where he's removed the plaster to reveal a brick behind, or what's going on there? You know, then you mm-hmm. get up close and go, "Oh, okay, right." But that was great. And then after the show was finished, I pulled it off the wall, screwed it in the board, threw it in the bin. It was just <laughs> absolutely fantastic. You know. So it's a point of man. So the I guess the performative and sculptural aspect at that point were probably more. More, um, more in the, I guess the foreground of what you were doing, yeah, rather than the photographic. Yeah, I mean, in the end, it ended up as a photograph again, as a documentary yeah. photograph. But that wasn't something which was going to be exhibited as a thing. It was just like I do the work in the space. Mm-hmm. It leaves a record, fine, but the record is not a um, not something to be collected or treated in a special way. It's just a, it's, it's the same kind of thing as the documentary photography from the nineteen seventies. Was treated as just something that's going to record this event. Yeah. Okay. So it's more. It can, it can be a bad photograph and still work, kind of thing. Yeah. And was it after this period, or like through this time, that you started doing more like sound and installation pieces, like the ones with the air conditioner and the earthquake? No, that's much later. Much later. Yeah, that's that's two thousands. That's in the this century. Okay. <laughs> now I think that during the nineties, I just. Um, the things that I made were, were the, the kinds of things that I would have photographed earlier, but I just didn't photograph them. I just put them in rooms. Oh, okay. And I used a lot of um, found photographic material, like like photographic wallpaper. Mm-hmm. And, um, and you know, there was one installation that I made where I found a, um, uh, like a photograph in the street. It was a transparency, a medical transparency, and just a 35-millimeter slide that had been under people's feet and stuff. It was sort of mangled. Yeah. And... Um, I just printed that and put it in the gallery. Okay. Um, and I was also interested in um, in things that happen by chance that just sort of, for some reason, you're just kind of moving along and you're doing one thing and then suddenly something happens and there's a different, some different thing comes in mm-hmm. and how you would deal with that. And there was yeah. one thing where I was um, preparing food, just, you know, cutting up food and I cut myself. And it, was, it wasn't a really bad cut, but... Um, you know, so I just bandaged it up, and the next day I kind of pulled off the the, um, the band aid, and it was a cut about a centimetre long and probably a couple of millimetres deep. Yeah. And it had sort of stopped bleeding, and it was clean and everything, but it kind of gaped open to reveal my flesh underneath, and I went, "That was fantastic." So I photographed it. Yeah. In the same way that you would photograph something nowadays and whack it on Instagram or something like that. Yeah. So how is the rest of the, I guess, the, the photographic climate and, I guess, contemporary art around what you were doing in mm. Sydney at the time? Like, were the people responding to it well or it, was, it wasn't really fitting in with the rest of the narrative? Um, no, no, I think, I think that what I was doing was um, what a lot of people were doing all over the joint, really. Yeah. Um, there were lots of um, 
And, and also, I guess it was it, it coincided with the struggle um, between um, the kind of um, photography that contemporary artists were making and the kind of photography that people who were more concerned with traditional approaches to photography were making. There was there was a struggle there mm-hmm. for for visibility, and um, people who were from that traditional thing thought that what we were doing was kind of like rubbish. Yeah. You know? What's, what is it? It's just nothing. It's, it hasn't got any kind of um, content or... It's that whole thing about craft. It, it, I think, I mean, it's really... Because uh, I can remember having a discussion with some, um, at a gallery where, where I, in, in the end, exhibited that cut, cut thing. Yeah. I, I made a print of it and, um, and exhibited it with a, um, an inflated uh, waterbed. So it's just kind of blown up thing plus this kind of cut. So it was a thing about surfaces and skins and what's underneath and, you know whatever but afterwards I went to a party and there was a, a guy there who was a, an old style painter mm-hmm. and we had a big argument about process basically and what and what objects meant in the world and he was very scathing I mean after I'd been talking to him for a while we'd been kind of bantering back and forth he sort of looked at me and said you're a Sydney College of the Arts guy aren't you <laughs> uh, yeah I am and he said, yeah, yeah, you guys are ideologues. Okay. The market rules, you know? Yeah. If you can't sell it, then, you know, it's bullshit. Okay. <laughs> and I went, yeah, mate, you know, standing there with your paint-spattered beret on and the guy who goes to France, south of France for the light, and please don't talk to me about ideologues, you know? Yeah. <laughs> so there was that thing going on all the time. But okay. there was a really strong... Um, Contemporary art photography, contemporary art photography um, group there. I didn't feel like I was alienated from them at all. Oh, okay, well, that's good. Not at all. Yeah. And of course, installation was in its ascendancy at that time. So. Yeah, and is that when you were kind of getting more into doing like using spaces and like being? I mean, you already said with the wallpaper that it was already site specific. Yeah. But then, when you were doing the more installation pieces towards the end of the nineties and early two thousands, mm. they were always site specific. Yeah. Yeah, they weren't ever something that I could make in a studio and drag in. Mm-hmm. Just, well, it never was. I mean, sometimes I used to make things um, in order to be dragged in, but they'd always be something which was made in response to a particular forthcoming event. Mm-hmm. Somehow I'd go there and check it out. And, and, and also I, I would I had a couple of experiences where I planned to do things and I got sidetracked yeah. by things that I discovered. Okay. Once, once, for example, I was on the way... Um, to an exhibition of first draft that I was going to put up and I had all my, I had my notebooks and what I was going to put in there and it was all just going to be really easy and, you know and had it all planned out and then I looked out of the window of the bus and it was, it was, we were going past going along you know the shops are going past and there was a second hand shop and there was this ceramic statue of a dog in there mm-hmm. and I just, I just I just you know something happened and I just you know got out of the bus walked back and bought this dog and and then everything that I planned to put in the gallery just, just not I have to do something around the dog oh, okay and that thing now if I think about it that thing that I did then is the, the piece that, been, that sticks in my mind as being the most sort of significant thing that I did personally yeah really well yeah but just because because I allowed allowed that thing to come in you know I allowed it to come in I didn't censor it I was I, you know, it was 
It was a strong enough kind of connection to my unconscious somehow. It's that classic surrealist thing. Mm-hmm. Basically, I'm a surrealist at heart, I think. Yeah. <laughs> somehow, you know, the eruption of, of, of the, uh, of, um, of the uh, you know, what's the word? The, the eruption. Of, I can't remember what the phrase is, but, um, you know, something spectacular comes into the everyday and just mm-hmm. shifts everything around. Yeah. And so I've always, you know, I like that. I, yeah. like, I like to make a space for that to happen in um, in the work and work that I do. Yeah. And was this around the time, like when was it initially that you went to Vienna? Was that around this period or like also a bit later? No. Um, well, that, I suppose it's another example of that. I went to Vienna um, at the end of... Because uh, it was there for, a, you went for an, ex- an exhibition? Yeah, it? I was taking, I went over for an exhibition. I knew people from Vienna in Sydney. Mm-hmm. I met them in Sydney. Um, and I was part of this show that was going over there, organised by one of these people. Um, so I went over to Vienna and I thought, actually, why do I need to go back? <laughs> you know, because Sydney was becoming um, harsh. Yeah. And Vienna wasn't harsh. It was sort of um, a much more welcoming kind of atmosphere for artists, I thought. Okay. That's how I perceived it. Um, Sydney was always something that was, uh, it felt weird being an artist there. Yeah? Yeah. Like compared to when you were at uh, Sydney College, for example? Like how well, it yeah, Sydney College of the Arts was like, it was like a, you know, like a sheltered workshop. Mm-hmm. You know, you, there, everything seemed fine. It didn't matter what you did. Everybody was a bit weird. Mm-hmm. They had, they had a, um, an intake policy which wasn't based around how many you know credit points you got in your exams or it was just like they interviewed people and they just took a bunch of weird people you know yeah. that was the that, that was Jim Allen's the guy that was running Sydney College at that time that was his thing you, you, you thought that what you should do is is organise a um, what was his he had a term for it I can't remember what the term was but you should organise a group of people a, div- a diverse group of people yeah and then you bung them all together and allow them to interact and you get a um, fruitful result. Yeah. And, um, oh, yeah, it worked at Sydney College in that time. It was really, really fascinating place to be. You'd see people there that you would never... You can't imagine why they'd be in art school. Why are they there? Strange. Yeah. Um, but, that, but great. Really good. But then when you come out into the real world and you have to deal with real estate agents and... Um, Oh, it's just horrible. There was no sympathy for, for artists, I don't think, really. You're sort of a weirdo. Why would anybody want to make art? There's no money in that. Yeah. Horrible.
you had the exhibition in Vienna and then you thought don't need to be in Sydney at this time mm. oh, this is where I'll start to set up shop I can be a bit more at home here now yeah but you've essentially existed between Sydney and Vienna like throughout like close to 20 years now isn't it yeah, yeah. and has that had, what impact has that had on your on your practice in general uh, I think it's been um, it's, it's sort of interesting I mean in some ways um, I think it's been really good for me personally to be able to go back and forth but mm-hmm. then again I don't know that really maybe it's would have been better if I just sort of committed to being in one place and not um, flitted back and forth yeah because it's meant something that I'm not really a part of either place yeah I'm kind of floating between places once when I went back one of my old colleagues in Sydney College of the Arts I hadn't seen for years and years she said it's like seeing a ghost <laughs> oh god <laughs> But I guess because you um, you were exhibiting in both places essentially, yeah, you had like a base in Europe and then a base in Australia. Yeah, that's right. So I don't know. And then through that time, because I'm curious about how you come to the, the installation pieces coming. Well, knowing that before it was very much um, photographic, sculptural, and they're often ideas that are conceived in the studio, and you're working in a specific way. But then. Mm. When you yeah, when you are working site specific with installations, were you looking for specific places to install things, or was it like a call for submissions, or did people approach you and say, "We're having there's a certain festival, or there's a different event taking place, we want you to conceptualise something for this"? No, environment? I think it, um, it, all of that practice in the '90s was based around the availability of um, artist-run spaces. Okay. I mean, when we were talking before about the, those last photographs that I took, um, I um, I took them around to commercial spaces before mm-hmm. I showed them anywhere. Yeah. And all of the commercial spaces that I spoke to said, oh, we really like it. It's great. We really like them. Pity it's photography, but we can't sell photography. Yeah. And, and I kind of went, mm, yeah, okay, right. And I remember one person said, if you're in London or New York, it wouldn't be a problem. But here in Sydney, it's conservative. We can't sell it. We don't really want to show it. Yeah. Were you with Stills at that stage? No. Because they were around, when did they start? 1990, wasn't it? Yeah, I think so. I can't remember what they, when they started. I think by the time Stills started up, I'd kind of thought to myself that I didn't really want to be associated with photography as a thing, yeah. as a practice. I didn't want to think about myself as a photographer. I didn't think about myself as a photographer, mm-hmm. even though I did, um, you know, take photographs for a living at, you know, various points, mm-hmm. documenting other people's work. Um, but I didn't see that as being a, an essential part of my practice, even though I used images most of the time in the works that I made. Yeah. So, I don't know. It was mostly the, the, the um, um, independent gallery scene which gave me that opportunity to yeah. do stuff. And you would just kind of write to me and say, you know, I'd like to show something. And they'd go, oh, yeah, okay, right. If they, you know, they'd, and they'd slot you in and that you know, kind of thing. It was, a, it was a scene. It was an active scene. Yeah. So, Do you feel that how much has that changed for you over the years? A lot. I mean, that's all based on real estate. Yeah, true. Yeah. It's real estate. So if you, I mean, there, there are still artist-run spaces in, um, in Sydney, of course, although I'm a bit out of touch with it now, but... Um, you have to pay a lot of money to rent them. Mm-hmm. And I just, uh, no, you know, it's sort of a different thing if it's, it's um, going to cost 
big money to sort of put things on. And in Vienna, it was the similar. They had a lot of project spaces and artists run. Yeah, there's a lot of stuff there. It's funny. I mean, I haven't really shown anything since um, in a in a normal in a kind of gallery. This is the first show that I've had for a few years now. Yeah. And I kind of thought I probably wouldn't again. Oh, even, right. cool. even though I had all this stuff that was in this room now, yeah. even though I kept on working on it, I didn't really. I couldn't imagine it being in a space somehow. I don't know, it's weird. Yeah, why do you think that is? I don't know, I just, I don't know, it's sort of, um, maybe I just kind of figured that uh, it was somehow a dead-end street. Yeah? <laughs> like, that's a bad thing to say. <laughs> no, I'm just, I mean, I'm curious to know. <laughs> you mean like having a, an exhibition of pieces that are, <laughs> I mean, essentially to be, to be bought yeah. By the public. Yeah. It's different than I think that's it. Yeah. I think it's I think it's about it's all about money somehow. Yeah. And it's about money and, and I've got a weird relationship to money and kind of and the commercial world and the market and all those kinds of things. I mm. just you know, I don't trust it, I don't like it, I don't like what it does to people's sort of um, creative practice. Yeah. And, and maybe it's because I I was spoiled by that little um, window in in the nineteen 70s and 1980s at Sydney College of the Arts when that wasn't even considered. It wasn't yeah. part of the, it wasn't thought about for a moment. All of those things that would normally kind of, you know, when I talked about that argument that I had with the guy with the beret at the party, yeah. he, he, he was a believer in the market. Yeah. You know, he was a classic, you know, if you can't sell it, then it's crap. Mm-hmm. You know, and I just didn't believe that. I just thought that was fundamentally incorrect. And I'd been used to being in a scene where um, people could make a whole lot of different things which would be absolutely unsaleable, but it would still be something which would somehow be a, um, a point from which culture can evolve, can arise. Yeah. You know, it's something you have a conversation between people who may have nothing in common and they all produce these things and the way those things are looked at in a group and the way they kind of the way that, that the influences that those conversations um, bring to bear on everybody, that's what culture is. That's what produces culture. Yeah. And I just thought that that was killed absolutely by um, questions of whether it can be sold or not. Yeah, so, no, People who are consumers of art in that way are not necessarily thinking about anything apart from status and um, how it looks in their living room or whatever. I don't know. Yeah, I'm, I'm a bit of an ideologue when it comes to that kind of thing. Maybe that guy was right about me. I am a Sydney College ideologue, but I think that probably I'm, I feel like that because because I had such a bad experience in my twenties in the commercial world. Yeah, and I just thought it was a horrible, horrible place. And then I went to Sydney College and I realised that there could be another another kind of interaction between people which wasn't based on you know, status and money and everything. Mm-hmm. Um, and then and, and I, had, I built up this kind of idea, ideal idea, idea of it. And then when I was thrown back into the marketplace again, and I realised, yeah, that, but that's actually the art world's just like that. Yeah. <laughs> I went, oh, okay. Well, I, I sort of got deflated. Yeah, no, fair <laughs> enough. And I guess, I mean, I know from my own experience, the... I guess because installation is so experiential, yeah. it's not based on, oh, this would look good in, the, in my office or this would go really well in the lounge. Mm. It is more about 
it's a catalyst for dialogue and yeah. for people to talk about things and to look at the world in the way they they may not otherwise. Yeah, and I think that um, I think maybe I mentioned it to you in an email earlier on. I think when when I was when I made those last pictures that ended up being collected, but I remember standing in front of them at the opening after a pain, an absolute pain, trying to get it there and on the wall in time. Oh God, it's a nightmare. And people were going, wow, really cool, you know, because, you know, and I thought, well, actually, if when I was listening to them, I was thinking, yeah, but they're not actually seeing the work. Yeah. It was like they were seeing the thing which represented something. It was like, here is a big cibachrome hanging mm. on the wall. It's like, ooh, you know, there's something about the the, um, the power of that object, wouldn't matter what it was. Mm. It was just... The power of that object as a as a thing which signified um, technological advancement and money, mm-hmm. and I thought, well, it's just they're not seeing it. So I thought, what happens if I just leave that bit out, mm-hmm. and they have to just go into the room where it was made, and there's no way they can think about how how they can own it. They can only think about what it's like being in the space and looking around and thinking. And you know, it was a non-transferable experience where you just go in. It's just a classic. That's why people. That's why people made installations. Yeah. Because they were not transferable. You know, they just were things that you had to experience, and they can't be collected. Yeah. You know, it's sort of anti-collection somehow. Even though they're collected now, but you know. Yeah. Well, then they transport like an entire space and put it somewhere else. Yeah. As soon as you remove it from the environment, then it changes yeah. how you receive it. Yeah. But, you know, I don't know. Maybe I'll soften on that a bit. It's been interesting over the last couple of days talking to people here. Yeah. So, because, yeah, obviously, you've been here for Gallery Weekend, and the, I mean, Buzz is the most time that you have such a concentrated number of people coming through the space. Yeah. Wanting to look at art and experiencing it the yeah. otherwise. And I know when people ask me about this time of the year, it's almost like because galleries are still in this sort of strange space where people think, I'm allowed to go in. Is yeah. Okay? Go down the yeah, until you go down the stairs. <laughs> but then it's almost like that. Those couple of days, it's like the general public and people that are maybe curious but not um, uh, brave enough for, you know, not brave enough, but they're like, is it okay if I do this? It's kind mm. of like, I've got permission now to go into these spaces. Yeah. I can look at things and all the artists is here. I can talk to him yeah. and I can ask some questions. Like, yeah. how is that then, especially being outside of the, I guess, the commercial context for so long? Mm. And like all the work in this room, at least, is from the last couple of years. So it's new and most of it hasn't been exhibited at all mm. to kind of get the direct feedback from people who, have not only never seen any of your work before, but they're seeing new work. And I remember you said when we installed it, this was the first time you've seen everything together, like in a space and not just a few pieces from the studio. Yeah. And I think that was what was good about this, um, in a way that was um, different from other times that I've shown things. Is I mean, it's kind of like a mini retrospective in some ways. Yeah. Even though it's sort of like, uh, you know, all the work in this room is, is newish work. Mm-hmm. It's not, you know, and yeah, it's never been shown before. And it's kind of the oldest pieces in here are only a few years old. Mm-hmm. They've never been anywhere before. So um, seeing them all together and being able to make connections between them, even though they're quite formally different, not formally different, but they're... Aesthetically quite different. Yeah, they, they have a different you have to approach them in a different way. I mean, mm-hmm. these ones, okay, they're framed pictures, so you approach them, but there's a different kind of thing about how you 
your personal space in relationship to these things is different from here and that so they all have a different way of affecting you physically as you as you approach them which is yeah. quite interesting and the content is somehow the same but somehow different so that, that you know the differences play off one another in an interesting way I think yeah because I think um, when we first put the show up we were talking about how each of these ones is connected to the past to memory mm-hmm. and the, that, the other point I wanted to ask you about is you said that noise is a big part of your your interest in your practice and how you um, incorporate it within your work mm-hmm. like what how would you say that noise like within these images like how does that as a maybe as like a central focus or a, a reoccurring theme how would you say that kind of exists within these images well I think I mean if I if I go back to that experience that I had in the 90s in the bus Mm-hmm. When I saw the, the ceramic dog, dog. Yeah. that's noise. Because I, I had a, um, that's what I mean by noise. It's, it's, it's like I had an idea, I had it all worked out, it was mm-hmm. all kind of nice and neat, you know, I got it, you know, I'd figured out what I was going to put in there and I'd sourced it and I knew where it was going to come from. I was on the way to the gallery to start measuring things, blah, blah, blah. Mm-hmm. You know, if you get to that stage where it's all planned, fine. Yeah. Great. You know, the show goes up in four days done yeah what's the problem you just kind of logistics work it all out to it and then this thing it's like what you know it was and it blew all the other stuff just blew it away but that's not something that i planned it's not something it's just something that caught me as if i'd um been on a different bus and be sitting on the other side or you know if they if they hadn't put it in the window that day or if somebody had sold it you know mm-hmm. if somebody had bought it two two hours before all of those things, and you know, that's like the um, the unknowable kind of mess that's around you all the time, um, which you t- you tend to f- you filter it out. It's because yeah. it's noise. You don't need it. I don't need that information. I don't need to buy anything from the second hand shop. I know what I'm going to do now. I'm just going to do it. But then this thing comes up and it blows it all out. Yeah. And that's the thing that I think is just I just love it. I love it. I guess that all of these things, in some way, are um, an acknowledgement that. Um, that that thing, that unknown quantity that's just there all the time, all around you, surrounding you, it's like there's enough, there's always enough in the present moment to do what you want to do. You don't need to plan it more than that. Mm-hmm. I know that sounds a bit weird, but there's something about the sufficiency of the present and how noise um, is a sort of a, a resource, not something that needs to be excluded in order for the information to become more clear. Yeah. Well, I think, yeah, I can see it certainly with the ones in this space and after we spoke about it because essentially the, the main subject of mm-hmm. each of the found images, like, so the, the found photographs, like these images from the newspaper, like the main focus of why the photograph was taken in the first place has been taken away and mm-hmm. you've only got the background or yeah. the noise or whatever's, um, whatever's surrounding like the main focal point and now that has become the main subject. Hmm. Yeah, like in this one, for example, you know that that so the, the remains of remains of my love. Yeah, that thing that I found was you know I, I can't say, but I guess that anybody else would have looked at it and gone straight in the bin. Yeah. I mean, it's surprising it was even there, and the only reason it was there was because the guy who ran the place, it was just like a junkyard. It was most of the outside and there were things with full of water and it was just, it was really junk. Yeah. And I just happened to find this thing buried um, and it, it kind of struck me in the same way as the dog did. 
Mm-hmm. Um, but it was absolute garbage. It was you know just trash. Horrible. I had to kind of prise all the bits apart. And, yeah. You know, it stank and mold, and I was like, yeah, you know, put it all out so it dries in some way, and yet you get this out of it, which is somehow, well, I don't know, it's sort of um, the opposite of that. You know, it's, yeah. it's something which is coherent and fascinating to look at, and somehow kind of, um, you know, it's been trans- transformed. That, so that thing that was just noise. Mm-hmm. The kind of thing that would just be dirt and you kick it out of the way and sort of, um, you know, it's a resource. You can reformulate it yeah. and make it work in a different way. No, it's really nice. I think even how they, well, I guess the recontextualization of the work as well, it's much larger mm. than it would be. Like the the um, like the, the small portrait photograph is now like an A3 or an A2 size mm. and just the level of detail in what was once like a small object that was destroyed in the flood when the flooded basement is now well I guess it's elevated as well it's on the wall of the gallery now yeah that's so right the, yeah the makes whole, you, it's in a place which is you know justifies its existence yeah essentially <laughs> has there been anything like talking to people about the work because I guess this is the first time you've had to speak about the work mm. the first time it's been shown was there anything that was revealed to you that you didn't see before, perhaps? Because I know each person that I've spoken to has had different things that have come away from it, and a handful of people have said it's quite... Um, some people have seen how morbid the work is, mm-hmm. and they've said, you know, this is really... Like, it really affected them quite emotionally, even though you can just look at it from a very... Like, aesthetically, it is, even though... A lot of things are destroyed or they're damaged and they've just been rescued essentially. Mm. They're still quite aesthetically interesting. But then there are a handful of people I know speaking to about the work that felt quite emotionally affected by it yeah. because it is to do with decay and that the, the people in the images have been removed from the images, like the postcards or the, the smaller photographs up to the side. Like you burnt out the photograph using so a magnifying glass so I mean I like this connection back to photography that mm. the photograph was created by light there's the shadow of the person in the photograph so the sun was behind them mm. now the sun's behind you you're using the magnifying lens to burn away what was there yeah to do the it's like a kind of a negative a negative version of the original yeah. the original act here's the thing I'm preserving the subject and now I'm Doing the same thing, but I'm removing the subject. It's like an inversion. Yeah, but also that, um, like all of the things, like all of these different items, because they're found and because, well, like we take photographs because we want to remember something. Mm. Like these are all things that were cherished that have been thrown away or have been forgotten about. And so when you're looking at, I mean, you can look at them and just go, this is really, this is a fascinating thing that I found, but it's also that what happened to those people? Like, yeah. who did this belong to? And, why was it thrown away or how did the people come to find it? Is it just the deceased estate, something else mm. go wrong? And there's there's so many charged like stories and emotions and memories that we can I guess we can impose our own narrative onto them, but you can't help but be reminded of our um, mortality mm. through the work, I think. Yeah, yeah. Which is also quite I think quite poetic that it is what's been well, it's the, it's the remains, really, like you call it, the remains of line of love. And it mm. is, you know, it's just what's left with the guy who's, I guess, a fictional character anyway. That's right, yeah. 
I think that's, I was just going to say that the thing about morbidity is interesting because a lot of, I spoke to a couple of people who said that it was, it was sort of creepy or, um, yeah, somebody talked about, um, you know, censorship, those kind of classic photographs where um, people from the Politburo have been scrubbed out, <laughs> and those kinds of things, you yeah. know, you know, people disappearing from history by, you know, somebody's action with the photographs. Yeah. And that's all there too. I think that's all, all there as well. Maybe with the silver ones, it's, it's, it's where it comes closest to being kind of... Um, I think the silver ones are interesting because they're the only ones out of all of the things which are still living. Mm-hmm. You know, they're, 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 the silver is being transformed... So it'll be different when the show comes down to what it was when the show went up. Yeah. So there's this process continuing on. It's still, and you know, somebody somebody mentioned the other day that um, he said, "Oh, if, if I buy one, that means in 20 years I'll, I'll, it'll be a different photograph." And I said, yeah. yeah well. <laughs> and he didn't like that, or he didn't. No, you know, he thought that was good. Yeah. He thought that was good, and that's what I think is really good about them too. I like the way that they're they're, they're still registering light. Yeah, no. You know, I think the original photograph did. Yeah. For just a split second, but they're just continuous, super long exposure. Yeah. <laughs> for as long as that thing exists, they'll be continuing to be shifted around. Yeah. No, so. that's not. <laughs> I think even thinking about it now as well, with each of the works, like before when you were talking about the original reason why you got tired of photography was because it was so labor intensive and that you had. Yeah, like there was too much emphasis on the craft and the artisanal aspect of it. But each of these works has, you know, your hand is very much present in each of these works and it has taken time. Like even to find the images, I thought, um, like looking at the ones with the holes burnt out, had you made them in Australia, that would be quite quick. But here in Europe, you know, it's mostly (laughs) have to to wait. It's no good if we don't forget it. Yeah. (laughs) (laughs) But also the, um, also, the remains of Lionel Love, just how carefully pieced, like, taken apart this destroyed album and mm. then created a collage from it to make a new piece. Like, it's all quite time-intensive as well. Like, it's not just, okay, everything's digital now, I can put it through the computer, this is it's much faster now than what it would have been. Like, getting the right exposures, going to the printer, getting everything made again, and I guess also the fragility of the work as well. Like, mm. even these ones here, they're, they're still photographs, but they're from a time when it was less, like, the photos were utilitarian. Like, have they even served a purpose? Yes, okay, we can throw them away now. Yeah, yeah. But not, yeah, we don't have to put on white gloves and be very careful with them because mm. we need to make sure that this is going to remain perfect for the next 200 years. Yeah. But then, you've taken what was destroyed and what was discarded and handled it with this delicacy to bring it, I guess, back into the, the fine art context, which mm. is quite nice. But in a way, I think as well, people can appreciate things, like you say, with the, the aspect of noise or background or what, what we don't necessarily notice or take any attention to, to look at it again and to think about it and, yeah, to imagine, you know, who was Lionel Love or what happened to the people that were in the photographs. Yeah, um, in a way that you probably wouldn't I was talking about that with somebody else. It's, it's like um, whenever you look at an old photograph, like those photographs are there, and you look at the you look at the subject of the picture, and you look at their clothes, and mm-hmm. um, you know the kind of expression they had on their faces, and all that kind of stuff. You, you you sort of telescope down into that content, that original kind of connection with the person. With the subject removed, you can't do that. You've blocked 
from telescoping down into the content, and you have yeah. to kind of think about what's around it, you know, and why. You know, you have to. It makes you it engages your imagination. I think it engages your imagination much more than if the subject was actually there. Still. Mm. Because you've seen thousands of photographs of old people and kind of, you know, it's a really common thing. But when that's gone, you have to think about all these different things. Just a simple act, the simple act of, of saying, no, we're not going to go down that track. Yeah. Stop here. And then you have to kind of go sideways. And that's when the noise yeah. can come in. Are the things that you might not have considered come in. spaces and exhibit work again or it's like no this is this is a nice like a nice thing to do just for a period and then I'm happy just to go back to the studio and I just keep making things it's not changed your um what am I trying to say you stepped away from exhibiting in galleries and just saying like I'll do my installations in project spaces I like making these things anyway but I don't have that um I don't feel the need to engage with uh, the commercial aspect of photography or the, co- the commercial aspect of the contemporary art world. Mm. Yeah, I don't know. I, I kind of, um, to be perfectly honest, I don't really think about the future very much at all. When I do, I get a pain. <laughs> <laughs> you know, I just so and and to go back to that, you know, that other um, pivotal thing about putting those last photographs on the wall mm-hmm. and everybody was really liking them and going wow 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 yeah and but at the time I thought well actually what do I do now yeah do I make more of these I could have just continued to make more of them but as a lot of people did and you know it became kind of you know famous whatever or maybe not but whatever they just kind of that, you know, they settle on the kind of a thing that they do, and then they continue to do it. Yeah. And I, I didn't, I didn't have any other ideas. And I thought about it really. I mean, I could have made more of those things. Mm-hmm. I'd worked out a, a strategy for generating images. There's lots of things I could have made, but um, I just didn't feel like I had another idea, a fresher idea, an interesting idea. I didn't want to just keep on making something that I knew how to do. So. It's a thing. I mean, that's why the synthesizer's been really interesting because I didn't know how to do it. Yeah. You know, and it provided me all sorts of problems that I haven't had to deal with for quite a long time. So I was like, hmm. how do, first of all, how do I make it work? And then how do I get it out in a way which can be public? Yeah, because did you build the whole, you built the synthesizer? Well, I built it, not only built it. Put the modules together. Yeah, I kind of amassed a sort of a, 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 
distinctive group of things that do a certain thing that I wanted to do. Yeah. Have you been using it for long? Um, two years. Yeah. Yeah. And do you perform as well in piano? Yeah. Yeah, I've only started doing that in the last kind of six months, but yeah. And then it's a different dynamic altogether, you know. It's yeah. really a different dynamic, and um, it means that I can. I've also been making films. I've been, you know, putting films with with the uh, with the sound, and that's quite interesting. I hadn't done that previously. So. Yeah. I mean, those things might have a, a possibility for gallery, you know, for a gallery distribution rather than just. A like for example, I've never done an ambient sound installation like this with a synthesizer previously. I've done ambient sound in spaces, but I haven't done something with a synth in yeah. a space like this before. And I think that would, that seemed to be quite well received by people. Yeah, I was always curious to see how it would go. And I think, yeah, I mean, there was a bit Apart of fun. From to you yeah. In the <laughs> no, well, it's not. We just certain frequencies that were just like, I don't know, cutting into my brain. But not that noise, please. <laughs> Any noise but that. <laughs> but it, no, it was, I think I liked how it went, like it, how it complemented everything. Yeah. You kind of think at first because everything in here is so organic. Yeah. But then the synthesizer is like the antithesis of that. It's like, how is this going to work? <laughs> Whenever I've experienced those kind of like noise, um, kind of avant-garde experimental performances, it always has been in a performance context. Yeah, that you yeah. go and watch somebody in stage like making the adjustments so you have like a visual in the sense of a video or some kind of film playing in the background but you would never go into essentially a static environment yeah. with a synth playing yeah so I mean it was nice to see actually how people really uh, received it and how it kind of played off of the work yeah so that was really nice yeah I thought it was good too and I, I also I didn't I didn't have any idea of how it Eventually, and and even the way it was kind of connected to the to the open books, yeah, in a way that was completely like, oh, actually, this works quite well there. Yeah, <laughs> strange. Yeah, so I don't know about the, the future thing. I don't know. Oh. I mean, it's the same sort of situation I was talking before. I mean, it'd be easy to keep on making these things. Yeah, but um, somehow it's the it's just. It's the idea that's important, and um, well, for me, it's a, it's the being able to immerse yourself in the in, in this idea, and as you're working on it, you're thinking about what it all, how it all works conceptually, and what it, what the associations are produced and stuff. Mm-hmm. Um, but then, why make more of them, sort of thing? Yeah, I guess once you kind of work that idea out, yeah, I think it is very much a a, a way of um, figuring out how how things operate in the world yeah. or how people's perceptions operate in the world and the relationship between perception and technology and kind of history and all those kinds of things. It's like a fluid, it's really a fluid field. It's nice to kind of work into that. I think I, was, I guess that's what I thought about art school. It was like a, a way to, um, it seemed there when I was there that it was a way where you could develop a philosophy. Mm-hmm about how you are in the world and yeah, how, things, how things how things come into being in the world and what how they get treated in the world you know ethics somehow yeah no, but I think like when you say it like that and even looking at the work for me I think it makes it more authentic because you're not you're not just producing a product because if it is okay people really like these silver things I'll just churn them out and mm. that's it I've got a good income from that but then it if you're um, 
yeah, I guess like you said, you kind of this sort of ideologue way of looking at things. You're like, well, that's I've I've worked that out now, and I've kind of that's finished. I need to do a new thing. Like I don't need to keep making that same thing, and it doesn't um, doesn't fit in with the rest of how I approach the world. Like I'm looking for new things all the time, and I want to find new solutions and look for new ways of experiencing and discovering. If I've just found okay, if I add this to that, and then people like it, and I just keep doing that over and over again, then I may as well go work in an office because I'll do yeah, this exactly. Then I'll get that's exactly right, and I think that's you know that my formative, um, you know, decade of working in offices and stuff in my twenties, like no way I want to go back to that mental space. <laughs> no way, you know, just yeah. anything but that. I'd rather be dead. talking more in the future and hopefully continuing the work together mm-hmm. so thanks a lot well thank you I found it to be uh, it's been a really great experience and, and um, it's been really good doing it over the weekend with lots of people who have been coming in yeah, and stuff and it's been nice. really nice intense conversations and uh, probably better than you'd get in an opening somehow yeah because it's a huge amount of people passing through and it's been really useful oh I'm happy to hear <laughs> There it was, myself, Michael Dooney, together with artist Chris Fortescue, recorded on the 1st of May 2018. I hope the mild echo wasn't too distracting, the recording environment wasn't ideal, and we'll be improving this with each instalment. Chris's solo exhibition at Jarvis Dooney runs from the 27th of April until the 23rd of June 2018. There are links below to his website and installation reviews of the work at the gallery, though I'd recommend viewing it in person if you do have the opportunity. Stay tuned for future episodes. We'll be interviewing other artists and those active in the field of contemporary art. Also be discussing our experiences and the reality of owning and running an independent gallery in the rapidly changing art world landscape. Until then, thank you for listening.